Almighty God, you have given your only Son to be for us a sacrifice for sin, and also an example of godly life. Give us grace to receive thankfully the fruits of this redeeming work, and to follow daily in the blessed steps of his most holy life, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And if, if you uh, have your Bibles open still to the Luke 14 passage, we're, we'll, uh, we're going to walk through this. Another, another challenging passage. All these, all these people that talk about how nice Jesus is and how he says all these nice things. And week after week, as I approach you, I have challenging messages to give you that are directly from Jesus. This is no exception today. For us, what has your faith cost you? What um, have you had to choose between continuing in something or giving it up for your faith? Does anything come to mind? Have you ever been pressed to drop a habit, change away, because of your faith? What cost have you incurred for following Jesus? Can you think of any cost you have incurred? You see, in our world today, we may not relate to a costly Christianity. But this is what he's talking about here. We live in an undisciplined society. The rule of the day is whatever's right for you is good. Whatever's right for me is good. You do you, I'll do me. There are no absolutes. You do whatever it is that you think is right in the time. If that's the prevailing thought of the day in the way our society operates, what message does the church have to speak into that? And I think this is the challenging question because the church, in large, has shaped a gospel which appeals to this kind of people. If it's right for you, it's good. But this is not the true gospel, nor is it brand new. This problem has been around for a while. This gospel proclaims forgiveness without repentance, without any expectation of change or transformation in the individual. It is a blanket statement of you are forgiven. And then people many times are left in that. And again, I'm speaking of a church as in the church as a whole, in American, as our American gospel has gone forth. Surely there are pockets of places that speak differently into that dilemma of our culture, of our current day. This same problem has been addressed over and over again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote The Cost of Discipleship. I had to bring my book because I forgot to include a a quote I wanted to share with you. Um, and, to, and to start with, I 
I got part of it in here, but uh, I didn't find a place to include the other. So it's just going to be a, a jump, and we're going to see the rest of it. But he addressed the same kind of issue in his day. He died in 1945. He was a German theologian. He was a pastor. He was a Nazi uh, fighter. And so he was put to death in 1945 at, at the, uh, uh, near the end of the war. He wrote about cheap grace. He, he addressed the, the same situation in his day that the church had changed the gospel to bless people's sin instead of a transformation in their lives because of the true gospel coming forth. He's, he called this cheap grace. And he said cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught as a Christian concept of God. An intellectual assent to the idea is held to be its, of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. Just the thought of, the, uh, of this mental assent to acknowledge, to know that Jesus forgives sins is enough to secure the remission of sins, to wipe out your sins. This is what he is saying. This is the problem with this cheap grace. The church, which holds to the, holds the correct doctrine of grace, ha, has, it is supposed, ipso facto, a part in that grace. And it's in such a church that the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace, therefore, amounts to a denial of the living Word of God. In fact, a denial of the incarnation of the Word of God. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. His words surely were jarring at the time. But it sounds like he's writing to us today. He sounds like he's writing to the Americanized evangelical church today. There are so many things that he was saying here that seem very true. So I want to give you this quote. It's the most, uh, it's the most popular quote, I think, out of this, out of this uh, book. He, and he, he continues in this thought, and, he sa- and then he's summarizing what cheap grace is. As if he just didn't. He was describing what cheap grace is, and then here's his, here's his like, uh, you know, one-two punch thing. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution with, without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. These are, if, if, if the words from Jesus hadn't hit you hard enough yet, then the words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer perhaps have. It becomes a heavy thing that he's addressing. And how do we know whether we're dealing in cheap grace or the real grace? How does this look? So this is what we're going to look at today. And this is what Jesus is addressing in his day the sense of a cost of discipleship. What has your discipleship cost you? So, though God's grace is freely offered, the cost of discipleship 
is the total surrender of self to put Jesus first. So the first thing we see is a cost of relationships. So if you will, look with me in verse 26. He says, If anyone comes, at, comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. All right, so this is harsh. How many of you, don't raise your hands, how many of you hate your parents? How many of you hate your brothers, your sisters? You know, it goes on. How many of you hate your own lives? So what is this hate here? And, I, and, and in preparation, I read some commentaries. I just want to throw this out. Um, some, comment, some commentators will say this cannot mean some watered-down version to mean simply love less. And then he, the commentator went on to talk about how this hate must mean hate. These are, and, and I'm not reading uh, unorthodox people. I'm not reading heretical people. These are quality theologians who I'm reading. But the reality is, is that it has to be exactly what this means. It's a love less kind of thing. Because we know that the Bible tells us to love our parents. And it's through the cross that we're going to be able to love our parents better than we did before coming to Christ. We're going to, the Bible charges us to love and nurture and raise our kids in the admonition of the Lord. Again, we're able to do that only better because of the cross of Christ, because of grace. So this hate, it's a, it's a compare and contrast uh, to the relationship we have with our, our earthly relationships to that that we have with Jesus. And comparatively speaking, it is that we love our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our brothers, whatever it is, we love them less than we love Jesus. This is what he's talking about here. He's addressing, in, in verse uh, 17, which is not in our section, but that was... This, he's addressing those who in 17 he's inviting into the banquet. So there's this broad invitation to come in to the banquet. It's ready. The feast is ready. Go out and compel them to come in. And he's saying that the one who responds to his invitation, to his grace, will be transformed and then love him in a great, with a greater love than they love their earthly relationships. Then they love their earthly family. And, and it's this thing again of here we, here we are with our American Christianity, our, the American gospel has gone forth, and there are many who would certainly claim that they are Christians. They've said a prayer, they've walked an aisle, they've filled out a card. But in their lives... There has been no transformation. There has been no life change because of their decision, because of their commitment that they made. And yet they say that they would are Christians. Now, of course, it is not for us to say who is a Christian, who is not a Christian. We can never tell who really is or who really isn't. But the the Bible does tell us that we will know a person by the fruit of their faith. So it did, and we, this is like our umpteenth lesson going through Luke, where we are pressed to not, not, look at, not look at my brother, not look at you, 
but for us to look at ourselves and say, am I producing fruit out of my faith? Is my faith real? So that's why this lesson's hard. Because we've we got to assess our own situation. It's not given to us so that we can assess other people's situation. But I do want to speak to this, that just because someone claims to be a Christian in our cultural Christianity land doesn't necessarily mean they're a Christian. I don't want us to be naive about that. There may be people, you may be related to, maybe in this list of those whom you are to hate, who you would see no fruit in their lives, yet they would claim to be Christians because it's the right thing to do. We grew up in church. Mom was a Christian. Therefore, surely I am. I mean, I don't know why people say they are all the time. But have they been transformed? Do they look different? How would it look different? How, how would it be if there were no faith in them at all? If they, if they didn't occasionally go to church a, t- a time or two every other year or so? What would it look like? Those people, and, and here I'm, I'm not asking you to sit around and judge everybody, but if this doesn't prick your heart for someone you know whom you love to pray for them, for a real visit from the Lord, for a real salvation to come upon them so that they can experience a transformed life by the Holy Spirit, shaping and forming them into the likeness of Christ, then we are naively looking at this and assuming that everybody must be Christians. When we were in Rwanda last year, and I was preaching to a group of young people, and I, anytime, anytime I'm preaching, I'm wondering... And I think I've communicated well. I've thought these things through, and I'm, you know, I'm doing the best I can with you all, who I am speaking the same language. I wonder, do you get what I'm saying? Well, with them, I was really wondering, do you get what I'm saying? And I charged them about, do you know anybody who's not a Christian? And I was like, raise your hands if you know somebody who's not a Christian. I'm like nobody raised their hand. There was an assumption that everybody they knew were Christians. So my translator slash friend, brother, uh, Ephraim, I said, you know, uh, develop that for me, please. They've got to be pressed. We've got to understand that everybody we know surely are not Christians. There's a thing where we get in our Christian bubbles and it's hard for us to uh, actually rub shoulders with those who are not Christians and we need to press ourselves to do that, yes. But I mean, the reality that everybody you know is really a Christian, um, even though they may claim to be, it would be uh, unusual. This, I think, scene, this scene is hard for us to relate to in our modern day, for, for who we are, where we are in time. These first hearers of this would have had a different response than we do. This sounds shocking to our ears, that we must hate mothers, brothers, so on. But in this first century, where if you decided to follow Jesus, it was a costly endeavor. You would likely be disassociated from the family altogether. So to follow Jesus meant you were leaving the family behind. I, I talk to people who are in churches who do not preach the gospel, and my friends are aware of that, but they're they can't bring themselves to leave 
because the people, they've been around so long, and those people feel like family. And I get that. I've been there, and I've done that. But this is the thing. It's because there's such a bond in that family that they can't leave. What this meant in first century times was a person may be compelled because of the Holy Spirit as Jesus preaches, God incarnate, right there, God in the flesh, preaching. They hear it, they respond. And there's nothing, nothing more important for them than to follow and be with Jesus. Their very family, which would be a large group of people, it's not like leaving one person, it's not like leaving two people, as we're accustomed to, perhaps. It's like leaving a tribe and, and saying, okay, I'm following Jesus if it costs me our relationship. Do you have that kind of conviction about your faith? What is it you're willing to give up to follow Jesus? These people, when they believed the gospel, when they heard and they believed, they were willing to give up their home, their families, everything they had in order to follow Jesus. At the end of this list of relationships, there's even the relationship to oneself. He says, disciples will hate even his own life. But I ask you, how does that square with the popular notion we hear today that one first must love themselves before they can love others? I've heard this a lot. And sometimes it's been in our very small Christian circles, like in our group. And I'm like, that doesn't seem right to me. What do I do with that? And so sometimes I just take another drink of coffee and hope it goes away. And, and, and it, it's, it's our culture's fascination with self-esteem. Self-esteem is a relatively new thing. The reality is, and I, and I get people feeling bad about themselves. I get people feeling too good about themselves. And maybe you don't, but I can relate to that one. But this is the beauty of the gospel. It's, it's not my self-worth that comes into play. It's my confidence in who I am in relationship to God. The creator of the world while I was dead in sin, spoke life into me and chose to pull me out of the miry clay. I feel very secure then in who I am to him. Therefore, it should bring those who are low up. And it's also a very humbling thing. So why me? We, we sang last week that song, of why was I a guest? We just... We wonder, why was I, I guess, why did we get the invitation? It's a humbling thing. So it brings up those who think too highly of themselves low. It brings those who think too lowly of themselves up. And the gospel answers that and delivers them with their relationship, which is secure to our Heavenly Father. It's been reconciled by His mighty act in Jesus Christ. It's this outside influence on us that we, our wills, were bound to sin. This is what the Bible says. And here's the beauty of the gospel. What we needed was something outside ourselves in order to breathe life into us. The Bible says this is what the gospel is. The gospel is not, y'all look good, think of yourselves greater than you are, talk to yourself, give yourselves pep talks, and go out in the world and hit it and do better next week. 
We call that bootstrap theology. I have, I have these that I wear, and there are bootstraps up at the top. And when your cowboy boots fit really tight, you've got to pull those on. I use my bootstraps in order to pull those boots on. That's bootstrap theology. It's a motivational speech to tell you to try harder, dig deeper. It's the football coach yelling at the team and encouraging you to say, okay, I'm going to go get the world. I am going to accomplish these great things that I have in my plate because God's on my side. The gospel says there was nothing in you that deserved a saving. The only thing you brought to the table was the sin that you needed to be saved from. That sin that you offended God with. It's the only thing you bring to the table. And God in His mercy comes to you, makes you aware of it, stirs in your heart and a desire for repenting of that sin and turning to Him. That turning from your sin, turning to Him. There's a this outside work of the Holy Spirit working in us to free our will from that bondage of sin, turns us to God so that we now have a desire, and albeit sometimes it's a light desire, to follow him and follow after him and be then shaped according to his ways. Look at verse 27. He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This, this is called cruciformity. It's a cruciform life as to what, what we are to uh, bear. This bear your cross was the same thing as like bearing the guillotine or the, the electric chair. The cross was used as a, an instrument for capital punishment. And in this, he's saying, be prepared to die. Bonhoeffer, in this same book, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, Come and die. So much for your best life now. This is, this is what the Lord calls us to. Come, come and die. Death to self is central to the true gospel. There will be a change when the Holy Spirit comes upon one and converts that sinner into a saint. Therefore, as we've counted the, relation, the cost of our relationships, we then look at our cost to follow him. Verse 28. He says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. I think this is, this is where, this is where Jesus is, is, is putting even more on us to have a bigger picture of what it is we're committing to. This thing of making a decision for Jesus is not the end of the journey. This is just the beginning of the journey to follow Him. There's a thrust in our American evangelicalism to, to drive for a decision. But that's just the beginning. If one is actually moved by the Holy Spirit, recognize that this is a lifelong journey that we're on. We may see someone, you may know someone, who visited a place and they drove for a decision 
And perhaps it was a young child. And for a period of time, that person was motivated and energized because of the emotions that they experienced. And so they made a commitment. They walked the aisle, they said their prayer, and they claimed that they are Christian. But they get down the road a little ways, and it was like something with very little gas in it. It just kind of runs out. They go back to their old ways. There's not a pursuit of the, thing, the holy things of God. There's a love for the world still. There's never been a disassociation from the things of the world. This is who Jesus is talking about. He's comparing that kind of walk to those who were building a temple, and they had to count the cost before they began so that they could see to it that they finish. It's not far from here. All right. I hope you're not visiting today, but there's a house that's not far from here. I'll put my hand down so I don't point toward it. That when I ride by it, there's a garage that's built, but it was never finished. I notice these things because I'm like, well, there's a man that lives a lot like me. There's a bunch of junk in that garage, and the garage doesn't have doors on it, and there's just stuff all over the place. But he didn't finish the garage. When I see that, as I'm driving by, I think of these verses. When I was in Blacksburg, there was a house that, same story. It was a house that began, and it never got to be a, it was never completed enough for somebody to move into it. And it just kept deteriorating over time. Kept falling down around, around, well, it wasn't around anybody's ears. Nobody was ever in it. They didn't count the cost from the beginning. Jesus is pressing us to count the cost here. So, we want to be aware that we can be driven by our emotions and our feelings, but we are to act on what it is that we know. We're going to consider the cost. We're not just going to act on our emotions or feelings. We're going to consider the whole of what he's asking us. And when the gospel is proclaimed well or fully, we'll understand what he's asking of us. And he's asking of all of us. This free grace of the gospel, it's a costly grace. And God's grace, God's costly grace that comes to us, teaches us to say no. Teaches us to say no to some things. Teaches us to say yes to other things. It'll teach us to say no to worldly passions, to destructive habits, to lusts, to drunkenness, sexual impurity. And it'll it'll teach us to say yes to the things of God. And this is not legalism. So frequently, when we get into these kinds of passages, it seems to be a contrast of of law and gospel opposing one another. And then when you talk with your Christian friends, it's easy to get this confused as well. This grace, this costly grace of God, leads to a disciplined life. And and, And that's in... Grace. This, this is not just legalism because we become disciplined. That's what a disciple is. That's where we get the word discipline from didache, teaching. But the, the teaching, we've gotten reduced to just mental, it's a, it's a head knowledge thing. But is that, do you teach your kids just head knowledge? No, we, we form and shape them. We express more to them than through our actions, through our example, through our nurturing and our love for them than we do in direct 
transference of information. It's the whole of the individual. When I think of our children, we didn't just teach them a few bullet points and say, go at it. We had them with us. We helped them. We shaped them. They knew that we loved them. This is what being disciplined looks like. We let them know that there are going to be consequences for their actions. Just because we love them. It's not because I hated my children. I want the best for my children. So I let them know, when you go out in the world, there will be consequences when you misbehave. I want you to behave for me, and I want you to obey, because I want you to obey when you're out for your teachers, for your anybody who's in authority, anybody that's older than you. It's a shaping and forming of that individual to have the right passions and loves. So it's not just a transference for head knowledge. It's being a discipline, it's leading a disciplined life. But what we see is when we start working toward the disciplines, we say, well, this is legalism. And we can all get caught up in, and we have been, you may not know it, and I try to describe it so you can recognize it, We've all been caught up in legalism. We do th- this, we're bent from, our, from, the, from the fall. Genesis 3, chapter 3 in Genesis. We're bent from the fall toward works righteousness. So if you tell me that you have not experienced a, any problem with legalism, you're lying. You don't know what legalism is then. Let me help you. You're confused. That's why God gave me you. Or you to me, or however that goes. But the reality is, is what, what happens is, because we have been shaped and formed for performance, we know if we perform well, we're accepted. If our children are perform, if they perform well, they're accepted. Well, what happens when they don't perform well? Well, they're still accepted because they're still our children. They never, they don't, my children have never not become my children. They're always my children. But we do the same thing, and, and, and that works for us in society. It works for us in our relationships. It works for us in our work. We want to perform well so we are blessed, so that we get a raise, so that we are kept, so we are not fired. But we, ta- we transfer that same thought into our relationship with God. And we say, if I lead a disciplined life, and I do my disciplines, if I do my prayers, if I do my reading, if I uh, serve people, if I do these things, He will like me more. I will be able to earn... We don't... You've never heard anybody say that. It's all up in here. And we know it's true. Look at what good I did today. All my green light, all, God gave me all green lights on my way to work because I blessed this person yesterday. Look at that. We become convinced that because of our efforts, God's going to love us more. Okay, that's what legalism is all about. And it's a selfishness at the at the, at the core of it, that it's hard for us to shake. And yes, we do talk about this over and over and over again because we got a problem with it over and over and over again. What this is saying, though, it's this grace that is free that comes to us from outside ourselves to free us while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies. He frees our wills so that we can live as God intended. This is where freedom is found. We don't recognize that we are bound to sin prior to this. But when Jesus in, Luke, in John 10.10, 10, he says that the thief has come to uh, 
steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and life abundantly. This is this abundant life that he's talking about. We are finally, because of his grace and his mercy and his renewing in us, we are finally able to live for him, and we are freed to actually practice the things with a desire to practice the things that he's given us to do. I find this very refreshing, because we know a lot of people who need to be freed. They need to be freed from all kinds of things that enslave them. Those who have been set free then read his word to understand who he is so that they know how to operate, so they know what it is that he desires of them. And they do that with a passion. But what will this godly life cost us? Verse 33 says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So the challenge is, what do you love more than Jesus? What do you hold tighter to more than Jesus? You see, we have a jealous God. He says, we shall have no other gods before him. Yet, in our hearts, we fashion idols out of all kinds of things, including good things, even our family relationships. And we are tempted to hold those idols in a higher priority than our relationship with him. We're going to now see about a cost that flavors. There's a cost that flavors. Let's look down at verse 34. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, as I understand salt in those times, salt any time really doesn't lose its flavor. So again, this is a bit of a contrast, except in that time, there could be things put in it to to, uh, uh, actually dilute the salt as time went by. Y'all ever been to camps? Camps were big on this. They'll put, what is it, rice inside the salt so that it keeps the moisture out, so that you can actually shake it. If you set them around camp too long, they'll get moisture in them, and you can't even shake the salt out. That kind of thing. You get too much rice in there, you have no salt. It'll lose, the salt then has lost its saltiness. It is no longer flavoring. Of course, what salt does, and we taste the salt, but it brings out the flavor that's in whatever it is we're putting it on. So those who God has brought to life out of death then go out into the world and become a flavoring to the world. You become witnesses for His grace abounding in you. You become witnesses to this undisciplined society we live in as those who love Jesus more than the things of the world, and you lead a disciplined life. And that becomes a mighty force for the world to reckon with, as an ambassador of the kingdom. So for us, may we consider what the Lord has called us to. May we respond with full fervor to follow after him. And when I say that, okay, the only thing that you're adding to your salvation is that sin which he saves you from, that's called justification. So in an instant, you are justified by no doing of your own. Thanks be to God. 
But it's out of that realization that we then work on what we call sanctification. That's where the Holy Spirit's working in us to clean us up and shape us into who Jesus would have us be. Even in the trials and tribulations in your lives, God is at work in you to shape and form you into this cruciformed life, into this death to self, to be living for Him, so that you may be flavoring the world around you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.